Hey, y'all, how's it going? I'm Scott Horton. Welcome to the show. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Nice driving. Holy crap. Sorry, I got Twitter on in my right eye. Ugh, CNN in my left eye. Um, South Mopad, Capitex, Iron Man, over there. Man. Way to go, dude. Anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, it's my show, uh, I'm a libertarian, and so I'm against the existence of American foreign policy entirely. And I am here to instruct you as to, uh, why it is that American foreign policy is wholly and totally and completely evil and should be halted and abolished immediately. Uh, yeah. And no, I'm not on the Koch brothers payroll. But I'm thinking that maybe I should be. Uh, I don't know. Some substantial portion of the libertarian movement is on their dole. Uh, and I, you know, I like money too. Except I'm not, I'm not willing to talk like, uh, Preble. I'm a Bandow guy, man. And Bandow's actually too status for me, but he's so damn smart and good on everything, I don't care. But... Anyway, I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to interview some journalists about the things they wrote. Can't change the world, but I can't give you a place to go to find out what the hell is going on. Now, what's Patrick Coburn saying about all this? I don't know. Let's stop by Scott's show and see. That's all. That's what I'm here for. To recommend reading. To you. Uh, today on the show, Daniel Larison, who I love recommending, because he's great. He writes for the American Conservative Magazine, and um, he's great, great uh, blog coverage of all things uh, 2016 election, but also he's very good on the wars, too. And so we're going to talk about all that stuff mixed together today, uh, particularly... Libya, but then also just, you know, the Republicans and their various stances on various horrible things. Also on the show, one of my very favorites, Marjorie Cohn, is going to be back on the show. And she is, yes, a leftist law professor. So you'll hear her talk a lot more about the U.N. and international law than the U.S. Constitution and federal domestic law enforcing the U.S. Constitution and its international obligations. But... Anyway, who cares? Because when you listen to her, here's what you'll think. Man, this lady's really sharp. And also, wow, she really knows what she's talking about. And also, wow, she don't pull any punches when it comes to her assessing who belong, who with power belongs in a prison cell. She's awesome. What's a war crime? Oh, she knows. Exactly what's a war crime. Hmm, I think maybe that counts as a war crime. No, no, no. She knows. Uh, in my administration, she'd be the ambassador of the UN. <laughs> no, actually, probably Ron Paul would be. <laughs> or Will Grigg. Uh, no, Will Grigg would be the attorney general. Or the head of Homeland Security. <laughs> Uh oh, yeah, no, we better not stop start talking about uh Scott Horton's shadow cabinet here. He is. There's a rabbit hole. 
Anyway, man. Uh, so I'm Scott, and I got to do the news for you, dude. There's a ton going on. A couple good interviews coming up on the show, like I say. Um, oh, I could tell you one more thing about that, which is that on um, Friday, day after tomorrow, um, I'm going to have Rachel Levinson Waldman on the show to talk about this great piece about uh, armed drones here domestically. Oh, yeah. You didn't think that the government wasn't going to shoot you with a drone, did you? You're wrong. They are going to. And she'll be on to talk about that. Okay, so, uh, um, yeah, let me see here. There's so much to discuss, but I guess uh, most important is Trump doesn't want to be in the debate. No, I'm just kidding. That's what TV says is most important. What's most important is... Um, I guess changes, I, you know, I don't know how else to call it, uh, changes in the Oregon standoff where the leadership, Eamon Bundy and a few of his guys, I don't know, the leadership, but Eamon Bundy and uh, what, four or five others, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe it was 10 total, somewhere around there, were going to town in a two-truck caravan to go for a public meeting, which apparently the whole thing was a ruse, and the feds... Uh, the hostage rescue team tried to stop them on the road on the way in between here and there. And so what happened was, um, and by the way, I think I tweeted this out. Somebody, and you know, I'll tweet it out right now just in case I forgot to. Somebody sent me this last night and it's one of the Oregon guys describing what happened. One of the Oregon guys describing what happened. And you can see this uh, on my Twitter feed right now at uh, twitter.com slash Scott Horton Show. I just tweeted it out there. And so what he describes uh, is that they were going to town and uh, the HRT pulled him over, um, pulled over this guy, his Jeep. I think he says he was driving, pulled him over first, yanked him right out of the driver's seat, disarmed him, arrested everybody or, you know, detained them at least for the time being. And then they went to the second car. They had both pulled over, I guess. They pulled somebody out, at least one person out, but then the driver took off. And the guy telling the story says he didn't see what happened after that. They were already 200 yards ahead, and then he took off. But um, he he says in there that rumors that the guy was on his knees with his hands up are not true, although he doesn't say why. He knows that exactly. He pretty much does. He says, what I'm telling you is everything I know, plus I'm putting together what I've heard from everybody else who was there on his, on their same side, right? He's not telling us what the cops said. He's telling us his best composite of what he heard from everybody else who was there and whatever. Not all of them were arrested. And, and um, but anyway, so one of them was killed. Uh, the driver of, of the first truck in the caravan, the second to be, you know, detained or whatever, attempted detained. Uh, was shot and killed. And so then, I'm sorry, man, because I had a story here. I do have a story here somewhere, if I can find it, where they explain. Um, here we go. FBI surrounds the place. So now, basically, the FBI is escalating, I think, and saying in the siege, before they had stayed back, basically. Now the feds figured they got the Bundy brothers, is it the Bundy brothers? Yes, it is. Both of them, um, arrested that, you know, the rest of it will go ahead and resolve itself or they're going to go ahead and hurry things up. 
This is from uh, KOIN.com. Federal authorities set up a perimeter around the Malhur Wildlife Refuge. I don't know how to pronounce that. Sorry. On Wednesday morning, where militia members were still occupying in protest, the agency said in a statement that the containment was better was to better ensure the safety of community members. According to this statement, only Harney County ranchers who own property in specific areas will be required to show identification and will be allowed to pass. No one else will be, is what they're trying to say. They're poorly worded. but um, And then I did see CNN ladies say, the FBI has warned us that we are between two armed parties and we better move. So here's hoping and praying that CNN stays put right where they are and that this does not escalate further. You know... And and I don't know what the other militias are doing and what, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of lines in the sand that have been crossed with the killing of this driver. And I think, you know, everybody, whether you're left, right, libertarian, uh, rancher, or even a federal pig, uh, everyone ought to all agree that we do not want to see escalation or any more violence here. Somehow this can be resolved without people killing people. I mean, my preferred resolution would be the national government should cease to exist immediately. Let the locals work it out, but... There's a happy middle ground in there somewhere, guys. That's all I'm saying. We don't need a massacre. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security. The Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Hey, uh, well, let's see. They got it fixed yet. They had a problem over at Liberty.me a minute ago. Hope somebody's on it. But anyway, uh, yeah, there you go. It's all fixed. It was just a little bug. And somebody squashed it. Um, if you go to Liberty.me and you click live, the blue live button there. Hmm, that didn't work. Oh, maybe I clicked the wrong thing. Uh, anyway, what I meant to try to continue to say there was, if you do that, then you'll find, nah, the link's broken. I don't know what the hell they're doing over there. Well, anyway, at some point, someday, you will be able to find last night's episode of Eye on the Empire. Uh, I guess it's on YouTube. Eye on the Empire, I believe it was episode 17 with myself and Jeff Tucker. And it was pretty good. He talked all about, uh, you know, uh, racism and eugenics and, you know, very right wing white supremacy in the progressive movement of a hundred years ago. And, uh, it was all very progressive, all this eugenics, you understand. 
scientifically moving us forward to the perfection of mankind. Madness. Um, and anyway, he's reading a new book about it that he's just, Jeff Tucker's just beside himself about this new book. It was called, uh, oh, what the hell I have it here? It was, uh, Illiberal Reformers. That's what it is. Illiberal Reformers. And he was just, man, it's like a reading a horror story or something. So, uh, that sounded pretty good. And then, of course, you know, I diverted into, uh, you know, the American Empire and all the racism and inherent bigotry built in to the American Empire. And, uh, and for that matter, the Israeli Empire in the occupied territories as well. So if you want to check that out, that's on YouTube. I guess Liberty.me is having a little bit of a bug issue, but they'll have it fixed soon. But um, it's episode 17 of Eye on the Empire. And by the way, uh, yeah, I got a bug on my server too. Some kind of database issue and... My guy, well, he's really busy, I guess. But, you know, maybe at some point it'll be fixed. (laughs) You like that? Listen, the website will be fixed in the future. Okay. I can't be more specific than that. So to tell you that, uh, yeah, certainly not in the present. All right. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's true. Sorry about that. My website is about as bust as could be. Okay, I'm done talking about the Oregon thing, unless something worse happens, but. I think Obama must have instructed the FBI that I do not want y'all to attack these guys, you know, unless you absolutely have to. But absolutely have to from their point of view is, well, we really, really want to, and we are tired of not doing it. And so the hostage rescue team, man, they love killing people. They're so into killing people. That's why they named them the Hostage Rescue Team. (laughs) It's amazing they didn't rename it some other ridiculous euphemism after Waco. We're all supposed to celebrate. Oh, good. Here come the Waco killers to rescue us. I feel safer already. Um, Yeah, no. Uh, so John Kerry, this is some half-assed news coverage, man. I don't know what to tell you. I know he's, uh, talking with the Chinese. He's in Beijing? I think. Uh, yeah, he's in Beijing. He's meeting with the Chinese. He's saying, we gotta do something about the DPRK, right? But so here's the thing that happened. Here, there's only tough talk in this, um, in this news coverage of it. I really can't find... I can't find any decent quotes or conciliatory quotes here at all. Now, I've been Googling the hell out of the Google News here, but here's the reason that I'm bothered by it is because when I first turned on CNN this morning, the hairdo was saying, and then Kerry said something about maybe we could go back to the old deal and give the North Koreans some aid and work on normalizing relations and and getting negotiations up going again 
somehow. Like they didn't say, oh, peace and an end to nukes or whatever. It wasn't too, too far flung. But it was saying something like maybe we could get back to the old days before George W. Bush destroyed our relationship with the North Koreans. That's what they're basically saying that Kerry said. But I can't find the quote anywhere. And then that was the end of it. They're like, yep, and then that was what he said, all right. And then that was the end of the story. And then unlike typical CNN blather, they have not repeated it. I've been watching all morning, waiting for them to talk about this again. What exactly did Kerry say about he actually wants to negotiate with the North Koreans? I don't care if he said he wants to go back to the agreed framework exactly or what, but just, but did he say he wants to talk with them? Instead of not talking with them? I hate this. The United States will take all necessary steps to protect our people and our allies. Uh, does that include negotiating? Uh, we'll go to nuclear war if we have to. Will you sit down at a table with a translator? Will you do that? That Barack Obama, man, I gotta tell you. You know, his, his, um, his North Korea policy has just been horrible. It's just been one big punt for, for seven years straight. That we just, eh, Abandoned the six party talks when he took office, hadn't been back since. Hadn't done a thing since. Meanwhile, the DPRK has tested four nuclear bombs and are estimated to have a dozen. And um, and they remain outside the NPT and the rest of them. But now, so here's the thing. You know, it's just like Tucker talked about in the show last night. It's not to praise Obama to just say everybody in line to succeed him is worse than him even. Right? That's not praise. That's just holy moly. Look at what a mess we're headed toward. None of these people are as less bad as him or yeah some so um if barack obama won't make any real move to try to negotiate with the north koreans then how can we expect his successor to do any better and the whole thing's crazy it's just like john pfeffer says you know, the problem is the Americans don't want reunification. That's why they don't want peace between America, a.k.a. South Korea, and the North, is because if the North and South unify with the North's nukes and the South's economy, then it's an independent, separate power in the Pacific that America wants to dominate forever. So they rather risk nuclear war than peace. Hey, Al Scott here. If you've got a band, a business, a cause, or campaign, and you need stickers to help promote... Check out TheBumperSticker.com at TheBumperSticker.com. They digitally print with solvent ink, so you get the photo quality results of digital with the strength and durability of old-style screen printing. I'm sure glad I sold TheBumperSticker.com to Rick back when. He's made a hell of a great company out of it, and there are thousands of satisfied customers who agree with me, too. Let TheBumperSticker.com help you get the word out. That's TheBumperSticker.com at TheBumperSticker.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. 
and I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show here. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Um, just a quick comment about the water crisis. You know, I haven't been keeping up on all of this uh, very much. Just, you know, basic headline skimming. Except I read one in-depth piece about it. It was in Rolling Stone. And it wasn't by that Ederly lady. So I think it's probably okay. And it's really worth uh, taking a look at, I think. It's instructive just in the contempt that all the local officials have for any of the civilians who dare come to them and complain. They come in, you know, with a jug of filthy yellow water, and they're told, you're a liar. You made that water dirty and came in here just to lie to me and ruin my day. Beat it. Get lost. You're nuts. You're an idiot. You're a loser. You're a faker. When people are coming in saying, hey, man, Ever since y'all switched to what we all know is the most polluted river in the world. Uh, we got red splotches, our hair's falling out, we're sick. You're a nut, you're a kook. Go F yourself. One lady was told, according to her, it sounds believable to me, because how's she going to make this up? She was told, it's called the Clean Water Act, not the Tasty Drinking Water Act. It's good enough. We're doing our job the way we're supposed to, so beat it. And, of course, what was happening was they were poisoning these people and their children with lead and other horrible, God knows what, carcinogens and whatever else. And they refused to do anything about it. And they did nothing but guess what, libertarians? They did nothing but care about themselves, the government employees, the individual government employees. They did nothing but care about themselves. So they lied and they covered up and they continued to allow matters to get worse and worse. Amazing, right? Well, guess what? Brand new story here uh, from the Huffington Post this morning. Hey, look, there's this town in Ohio where they got the same problem and where they've been covering it up since the uh, the test came back last summer showing elevated levels of lead in the drinking water. And they've been lying about it and lying about it and lying about it for half a year. And now they're not even admitting what's the problem. They're only just shut off the water to the public schools, not to the houses, and just started recommending to everyone, yeah, you ought to get bottled water. Uh, really? Why is that? And, um, yeah, it's funny. I don't know how the liberals are supposed to blame free market capitalism for this. When it's all government employees, like the turtles, all the way down, there's nothing government here. They can try to blame Republicans and say, well, the Republicans are into austerity. But, yeah, as opposed to what? Spending money they don't have? And why is Flint broke? Just because 
the government's boom and bust cycles and subsidies for corporations to offshore their factories and all these things? Well, not just that. It's also because, as it says in the Rolling Stone article, because it's beyond dispute. It's, you know, the accusation is over there at Reason Magazine, although I don't think they really did a very good job of proving it. Confirms my bias, but they didn't really show it. But in the, in the Rolling Stone article, they conceded as well that the reason the Flint budget was busted is because they have the legacy pensions to pay for all the former government union employees of the city of Flint back when they were prosperous. So these so-called civil servants who have salaries and pension plans beyond virtually anyone in the private sector, beyond, you know, executive vice presidents of giant corporations and stuff, um, even after all the money is gone, even after the national government destroyed the economy, wasted $6 trillion slaughtering Iraqis and Afghans, etc., 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 you know, destabilized this country uh, almost as bad as the region over there in doing so, uh, the city still owes. And so that's where all the money goes. And so in order to save money, they switch from the freshwater lake to what was basically known by everyone to be an open sewer, toxic waste dump, the Flint River. And so, again, government employees all the way down. Uh, the only thing capitalist about it is that capitalists suffer just like everybody else when the government booms and busts the economy, which it does. And yes, many capitalists are in on it with them. <laughs> I don't mean to imply otherwise, but I'm just saying uh, the banks, they can't make a giant boom bust cycle like that on their own. Because they know if they do, they'll go out of business. They can only do it with the government backing them up and promising to keep them whole, no matter what. So, anyway, that's what happened to, to uh, Michigan's economy in the first place, to the industrial base of the United States in the first place, is uh, number one problem, really at the root of so much in this society. Uh, we got funny money, when what we need is sound money. In order to have freedom, you know. Uh, but anyway, so there you go. Uh, I hope there's a whole new scandal. Doesn't this kind of sound to you guys like, uh, you know, the, the priest rapist scandal? We're like, whoa, all of a sudden every parish in America's got a problem they got to deal with kind of thing. Now that this scandal is really busted, uh, you know, busted open into the public imagination, Let's see some lead dr lead in drinking water test results from elsewhere around the nation. And, of course, you can place your bets now, right? Particularly in poor black areas where, say it with me now, what are they going to do about it? Government has de facto immunity. They're de facto white supremacists, even when they don't feel that way, because that's the structure that they operate under. You know, the people on the poorest and lowest end of the stick with the least political power and ability to fight back are the ones that bear the brunt of it. Whether it's, you know, solitary confinement, you know, arrest on pot charges, uh, murder on the side of the road, lead in the drinking water, anything else.
And you know what? I I guess I can understand from a left-wing point of view how they just can't break out of the idea that only government can even this out. Uh, Poor people and black people have been at such a disadvantage for so long. Only government can help them. But look who's holding them back. Look who's poisoning their kids with lead. So anyway, maybe time to reevaluate some premises here. Maybe not. Uh, what time is it? Enough time to talk about the Afghan war. Pentagon on Afghanistan. Well, the U.S., quote, can't really leave. As Jason Ditz puts it in the headline here at antiwar.com, 15-year occupation to last multiple generations more. (laughs) For God's sake. (laughs) I mean, we all know that Obama signed a deal to stay in Afghanistan until 2024 anyway, but several more decades. They're going ahead and and putting putting it that way now. What we've learned is that you can't really leave. (laughs) One Pentagon official was quoted in the Washington Post as insisting, while other officials openly talked about a, quote, generational approach in which the U.S. stays for generations more to create an entire new Afghanistan. Well, come on, guys. I thought the surge worked. I thought we were going to change their entire society and give them a government in a box and create a new Western civilization from there in Afghanistan back in 2009 through 12. What happened there, boys? No? Oh, another like that, probably. Huh? Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. Which is, by the way, what he's doing right now. Selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world, all specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. I swear, man, I got a second hour full of interviews for you coming up on the show. Uh, Right now, I'm talking about Afghanistan, Pakistan. Well, I was talking about Afghanistan. Here's Pakistan. Obama urges serious action against Pakistan extremists. You know, it's just like Basevich said. Here's some questions for the uh, debaters. The terror war has been going on for almost 15 years now. Why has it taken so long? It's going to take a generational commitment starting now to fix Afghanistan? Pakistan urges the president must begin to start showing that they are, quote, serious about crushing extremist networks operating on its territory. 
saying that the latest mass killing of students underline the need for more decisive action. Really? Is it possible that what the recent mass killing of students underlined was that decisive action has been an abysmal failure? That perhaps even decisive action is what is causing the problem? Now, I'm not saying that the kooks up in the Swat Valley aren't kooks, but what do they care about coming down to Peshawar and attacking a bunch of nobodies? Except for the fact that the government of Pakistan, uh, in alliance with the government of the United States of America, namely President Barack Obama himself, have been bombing the hell out of these guys for seven years straight. What's the date? The 27th? For seven years and a week. Speaking of which, victim of Obama's first drone strike from his third day in office. From his third day in office. I am the living example of what drones are. Uh, Fahim Qureshi was 14 when a drone attack on his home left him with horrific injuries. Several family members dead and his dreams for the future in tatters. Oh, and I know, don't worry. Barack Obama has sent his minions out to make it clear to the media and the way this history is written that, well, gee, when his first drone strike did nothing but kill a bunch of innocent civilians, he was really, really upset about it. And he said to the CIA, gee whiz, guys, how was it that you only killed a bunch of innocent people on my first act of mass murder as a president? Couldn't you got at least one guy with a rifle so we could pretend he was a, quote, militant or something? Obama cried. And then he went on to sign death warrants for thousands and thousands and thousands of more Pakistanis ever since then. Including what you might call a general warrant for the CIA to kill anybody who fits a signature. Like, well, they're a male, probably a fighting age, and did jumping jacks. Or held a rifle. Or rode in a truck with other men of approximately the same age. No, really, read it in the New York Times. All about Terror Tuesday. This is a signature strike. Isn't it funny that they chose that kind of euphemism to use for it? What they mean is, well, he fits the signature, right? Not the profile. They don't use the term profile. It's a profile strike, right? But they use the term signature strike to confuse you, I think, to make it sound like, well, gee, Obama himself has to sign off on those with his very own signature, because of what high-value targets they are and the high level of intelligence that is being brought to him. No, that's not it at all. It's just made to sound like maybe that's what they mean. No, it's a profile strike where, I swear to God, read it in the New York Times, if a young man does jumping jacks, that is considered a death penalty offense by Barack Obama's Democrat drone killers. Seriously, literally, hiding behind the entire diameter of the planet Earth. 
while they kill these helpless people. And Barack Obama, all along, as long as the Pakistanis let him kill supposed al-Qaeda targets in the Northwestern Territories there, he would let the Pakistanis use the CIA drones to target their enemies in the Pakistani Taliban, even while they're still back in the Afghan Taliban against us in Afghanistan next door. And so Obama's done that. Obama has taken out uh, Pakistani Taliban targets that, you know, on the on the wish, you know, for the the wishes, not not on their own interest, but in order to fulfill the wishes of the Pakistanis. And he's been doing this this whole time. Now, the violence is still everywhere. There are new, different militant groups popping up all the time. And all Obama can say is the Pakistani government better get serious about doing something about it. As though they haven't been this whole time. It's amazing to me. Isn't it amazing to you? And then uh, here from news.antiwar.com. Ending reported freeze quote-unquote, the ironic kind, Israel approves more settlement expansion. Uh, Several small settlements to expand across the West Bank. This is Jason from yesterday at news.antiwar.com. While Israel has repeatedly announced major settlement expansions in occupied East Jerusalem in recent months, there had been reports of an informal building freeze in settlements across much of the West Bank. That freeze, again with the ironic quotes here, to the extent it ever existed, is clearly over today, as Israeli planning authorities approve new buildings and settlements across the West Bank. And then, you know, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and skip to this. I mean, that's just par for the course, right? But you got to read this, and I have an invite out to the guy, although too late. Very, very short notice. Maybe I'll have him on tomorrow if I can. So I don't really want to spoil it except to recommend you read this thing. I I saw this on Twitter this morning. Ah, oh, Mondo Weiss link. I better click this and see what it is. And I just love this headline. It's the greatest thing. I laughed so hard I almost choked. Dennis Ross says Clinton was the only president to stamp down anti-Israel forces inside the White House. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, And then you just got to read the whole thing. It's free and hilarious, man. So it's this guy, David Kattenberg, who um, he went and saw a Dennis Ross speech. (laughs) And then... And as ridiculous as the speech itself is, as covered by uh, Clattenburg here, it's really funny uh, to get a load of. You know, it's a very, you know, preaching to the choir type of an event for Ross. So it's not like he's even trying to be the slightest bit honest. Um, But anyway, uh, and then the guy confronts him at the end. Well, he's, you know, he's a reporter, so. It's not like he's an activist confronting him. He's a reporter, but he's asking him tough questions. And Ross just flubs every single one of them. I mean, seriously, I don't want to ruin it anymore. But just go to Mondo Weiss and read this today, guys. It's fun. It's infuriatingly, ridiculously ridiculous. Um, 
if you ever thought that, uh, you know, if you ever questioned the Palestinians' case here, just listen to Dennis Ross defend the Israeli one. <laughs> That's something else, dude. Um. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I uh, I um, I opened up the chat room and then I forgot to look at it the whole time because it's not where it usually is. Because I'm not looking at my website, I just I'm using Chatzilla for it. So now I got to catch up on uh, on which call it's here, man. I got uh, with some HRT stuff. I got to read that during the break. Um. Oh, why should we nego- negotiate with North Korea? Just abandon the peninsula altogether? Touche. Yeah, you got me, man. I did. I'm sorry, I did make a half-assed argument there. I, I guess I could have said, you know, as, assuming the existence of the presidency and its empire in the Pacific, still doesn't have to be this bad. But yes, you're right. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. This is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years. How lame. You know, that soundbite playing machine always freezes up like that and ruins my intros. Try again. This is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. That's Wesley Clark talking about the days right after September 11th, what he found out about the neocons' uh, grand plans there in the Pentagon. But here's Barack Obama. I've ordered military action in seven countries. I have ordered tens of thousands of young Americans into combat. Yeah. And the seven countries, I'm pretty sure they align exactly with the very same ones on uh, Wesley Clark's list there. Um, anyway, uh, introducing Daniel Larison, the great Daniel Larison from the American Conservative magazine. Uh, he's got a recent one. The war on ISIS expands to Libya. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. How you doing? I'm doing well, Sal. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, very happy to have you here. And I do want to talk all about politics. And of course, politics, especially presidential politics, is all wrapped up in foreign policy anyway. So it's all kind of one big uh, messy subject. But you do a lot of great writing about um, especially the Republican side of the race here at the American Conservative Magazine. I'll recommend your writing to everyone on that. Um, but on Libya, uh, well, I, I guess I have to say, I don't have to, but I will say that I predicted this and like always, I hate being right because all of my predictions are of doom and then they always come true. <laughs> so what I had said back in 2011 was if they do this, if they even start with the no fly zone, you can see the logical chain of dominoes that falls down. America owns the center part of North Africa forever. 
You know, as soon as the first suicide bombing happens, you know, next thing you know, we got America's got to train up their army and do some purple fingered elections and try to undo the fact that they turned the place into jihadistan. And so I guess I'm grateful that it's taken them years. It's taken them five years to get to phase two of trying to fix the mess that they created back in 2011. But looks like here we go. Am I right? Uh, well, they're, they're certainly uh, looking to ramp up the, the war on ISIS, and they're they're already talking about uh, using uh, airstrikes in the country uh, to try to remedy some of the, the mess that they created with the war in Libya in 2011. Absolutely. I mean, do they have any kind of viable force on the ground to back? I mean, uh, well, I mean, the, the country is split between uh, warring militias. Uh, rival militia groups, uh, as it has been ever since the regime was overthrown. And so I, mean, I suppose the nominally the U.S. would be doing this to, quote-unquote, support the recognized Libyan government, but they have virtually no control over the armed factions that are in their country, which has been one of the reasons why the country is so lawless and, and out of control. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like the news is that the American-backed or the more American-friendly government there is still out of our control and has rejected the U.N. plan for a unity government and some kind of, uh, you know, sharing deal. I guess it's possible that's because they know that we got their back. Why negotiate when they can keep fighting, huh? Uh, well, and they don't, you know, they don't need to accept the unity government when they they already have de facto control. Uh, well, I mean, but they only have de facto control of half the country, I guess, or maybe not even that, right? Right, but then they don't need to make any deals or compromises with people on the other side of this war. Yeah. Um, well, and so, um, and you, you also bring up here, and it is an important point, the authority of the president to do anything. It's funny. It sounds... Just like Henry Hyde said to Ron Paul back in 2002, by this time, it certainly sounds archaic and completely moot whether Congress uh, passes a declaration of war or, or even any kind of authorization for whatever the president wants to do, huh? Certainly in Libya. Well, well, the president operates on the assumption that he doesn't need it and he'll distort and twist whatever existing authorizations there are to pretend that he's already got the authority that he needs. And clearly, there's there are very few people in Congress. There are there are a handful, but there are very few that are going to call him on it or even try to challenge that. And so we're in this sort of limbo where he can start and expand his own war uh, without any real input or debate in Congress. All right. Well, and, Dan. And there, and there's, oh, yeah. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and there's nothing that Congress is going to be able to do about it. Yeah. Well, now, I'm sorry. I know you're familiar with this. Um, it's, it's worth confronting, I guess. Uh, it, it, there's a, a very common understanding on the right that the problem here is that Obama, if he's not a secret commie Muslim traitor, he's at least an ineffectual liberal wimp. And what we need is for Donald Rumsfeld to get in there and go and kick some ass. And he will show them Libyans what's up or replace Trump with your favorite GOP candidate there. And, uh, Yes. So what do you think of that? I mean, after all, you got to admit that, 
the worst collection of jihadists in Libya are nothing compared to our Marine Corps, right? Uh, well, of course, the, the funny thing about the people that are complaining about Obama's handling of Libya is that they're not really willing to own up to the fact that, they, that they're implicitly calling for sending American soldiers there to occupy the country. Uh, they, keep, they keep trying to hide behind and say, oh, well, someone else will actually put the people on the ground to stabilize the country. Uh, so they're, they're, they're trying to sound as if they're in favor of a more aggressive policy, but they don't want to own the costs of it. And so you, you won't actually get very many of them to admit that that's what they're, they're actually arguing for. Uh, yeah, it's interesting about that. And of course, you know, and this is, I guess, the same in any uh, presidential political season. There's never any good follow up questions about any of this stuff. So if there's, you know, a great Libya exception to a presidential candidate statement, you, you know, without Michael Hastings there, there's nobody there to say, yeah, well, but what about this? And what about that? So it just kind of goes unremarked. They get to just skate on with the most kind of bland sort of, uh, sloganeering rather than any real explanation of what it is that they mean. Sure. Well, and you, and you see that uh, in the Republican debate, but you also see it in the Democratic side when Clinton can get away with saying that the Libyan war was smart power at its best, and no one really challenges her on that because nobody's prepared to challenge her. They haven't even really given it much thought. Yeah, you know, it's really too bad. Um, and this won't be a personal attack, just a political one. It's really too bad that Rand Paul has not made, you know, proper hay out of this. He was good on Libya in 2011, good on Syria too, and he does talk about it from time to time. But he could be ruthlessly slamming these guys and, and, you know, mocking everybody left and right for their contradictory positions on Middle Eastern foreign policy. I mean, the contradictions are all over the place. He could really be making great hay of, I mean, after all, Hillary backed al-Qaeda in Libya. Let's fight about that. What an accusation. Let's squabble about it. And then he's got the PDF files to prove it. It's all right there, you know? Right. And he has done a little bit of that in the past. He has linked Rubio and Clinton on that issue. And to some extent, Cruz has been trying to steal his thunder on that by making similar arguments. Um, But, yeah, he he certainly could be doing more of it, and I think he would get more attention if he were doing more of it. But, uh, that, that, yeah, unfortunately, that's not the way he's been going lately. Yeah, it seems to me, you know, it would all be good politics for him to to stake out those Ron Paulian positions. But anyway, um, and then, yeah, you're right. I guess, you know, you could say the same for Trump, too, right, that he and Cruz are staking out the position that, uh, you know, they're nationalist, right-wing tough guys who will smash the enemy ISIS or whatever. But at the same time, they kind of talk about, uh, you know, even Sarah Palin. And then I assume they discussed this. I don't know. Sarah Palin talked like this in her endorsement of Trump, that enough of these no-win wars and participating in civil wars. And it's a crass right-wing thing to say, let Allah sort them out and whatever. But she's saying, but out at this point, pretty good. For the right, but now, of course, the music's playing and we got to go to break. But I'm going to ask Daniel Larison a question based on all of that blabbling right after this. Check him out at theamericanconservative.com.
Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, all Scott Horton here. Are you a libertarian and or peacenik? Live in North America? If you want, you could hire me to come and give a speech to your group. I'm good on the terror war and intervention, civil liberty stuff, blaming Woodrow Wilson for everything bad in the world, Iran, central banking, political realignment, and, well, you know, everything. I can teach markets to liberals and peace to the right. Just watch me. Check out scotthorton.org slash speeches for some examples and email me, scott at scotthorton.org, for more information. See you there. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton, talking with Daniel Larrison from the American Conservative Magazine about all his great coverage of the wars and the politics, and the politics about the wars. And so I was trying to work up to a form of a question there about uh, Cruz and Trump both, and Trump with uh, Palin's help there a little bit too, staking a position that's very you know, nationalist and hawkish and yet very distinct from the neoconservative uh, doctrine. And uh, I'm interested in your analysis of what all that means, Daniel. Sure. Well, what all of them seem to be doing is to emphasize that the U.S. should only go to war to protect American interests. And those interests are are pretty narrowly defined as security interests. Um, And and they're conceived of in terms of opposing terrorist groups or, or hostile states, I suppose, uh, also. And their their emphasis on the national interest over and above anything else means that they're not a, a very good fit for all of these people who want to talk about global leadership or global responsibilities. Um, the, the, the usual tropes of U.S. leadership where we have to get involved in all of these conflicts uh, in order to maintain our status as, as the hegemon. So they are clearly dissenting from that part of interventionist foreign policy. They're not against getting into foreign wars, but they are uh, very much against prolonged nation-building occupations of the kind that we have seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so they, I think they'd be more inclined, if they are going to go to war, they'd be more inclined to put a top of the government and then walk away from it, uh, or, or maybe just destroy the army in the field and then walk away from that. Uh, so it's it's not certainly from the point of view of people that are interested in restraint and peace it's not ideal but it is somewhat of an improvement over uh, these, these sort of open-ended multi-decade wars that we've been seeing uh, this century. Yeah. Now. Um... Uh, you didn't write about this that I know of, but, uh, you may have seen this really long in-depth, uh, piece, I think in Politico magazine or maybe it was just plain old Politico about how, oh no, Trump is, is, he, he might seem like he's making this all up off the cuff, but check out 25 years of foreign policy statements. He's, uh, uh, Robert Taft, right wing isolationist, and he, he, has proven over all this time that he absolutely opposes everything about the American empire, as I would call it, uh, but the benevolent global hegemony, I guess, from the point of view of the writer of the article, that he's against all the trade deals, he's against um, 
you know, he, he absolutely resents all of our allies and sees them as sucking off of us. And I guess he doesn't really get into the United Nations itself, but basically he's against what this guy calls the entire international liberal order that the U.S. has constructed post-war. And he's a threat to every last bit of it. You buy that? I, well, not quite. I, I think, I mean, there, there are some elements of truth to that, but it, it's giving Trump too much credit for having a coherent worldview on the one hand. And, it, and it's also trying to shoehorn him into a tradition that I don't think he really belongs to. So, I mean, for instance, when he's talking about allies that sort of freeload off of us and take us for granted and accept that we're going to defend them without doing much for themselves, uh, what Trump's really articulating there is just an alliance at not getting something out of the relationship. It seems to me that the, the one thing that is consistent about Trump is that he thinks that our foreign policy should get us things. Uh, it, should, it should get us tangible benefits. And so whenever he sees anything, whether it's the Iraq War or the alliance with Japan or allies in Eastern Europe, if that's not actually giving us some kind of tangible return that he can point to and or, you know, hold in his hand, then he thinks it's not worth doing. Um, I, I don't think that's the same as any sort of coherent or principled objection to entangling alliances or uh, to unnecessary wars. Uh, it seems to me he'd be perfectly happy with these arrangements if the Allies chipped in a bit more for their own defense. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't think he's anything like uh, a Taftian or non-interventionist type uh, by instinct. And I, I read that. I think it was Thomas Wright who wrote that. Uh, I, I read that entire article as a an elaborate way of trying to push Trump into the isolationist column as a way of making him seem more frightening to a lot of foreign policy people. Hmm. Uh, and I, I, I don't think it holds up very well. Yeah, it's funny, because you would think the major effect of that would be to make, you know, uh, peace-knit conservatives like yourself seem like you must be buffoons like him or something. But no, nah, everybody loves Trump. <laughs> if anything, this attack on Trump will end up helping the American conservative magazine somehow. Uh, seems to be the the way all the magnetic poles are bouncing off each other in this election season anyway. Um, which brings me to a question that uh, uh, seems it seems like there's a lot of angst about this uh, from the neocons and other establishment uh, Republican types about, um, as, as one wag put it on Twitter, uh, who should they choose, the guy that they fear or the guy that they hate? And that's right. Trump and yeah. Cruz. But I wonder, what is it about Cruz that they hate so much? Because to me, he seems like every bit the rhino of the rest of these guys. He just wears a better, you know, populist costume than they do. But he's married to Goldman Sachs, for Christ's sake. Sure. And, well, I think they are starting to, there are attempts to try to reconcile him with uh, more of the, the neoconservatives in the party. There was an article today, I think, in BuzzFeed talking about how there are some back channels between the Cruz campaign and some of these folks uh, to try to repair some of the risks that have opened up during the campaign as they realize now that Cruz is probably their best bet. And so uh, I, I think with Cruz, one of the things that really bugged them about him is that they see him as being too close to Rand Paul on foreign policy. And, and anybody who's even getting near Paul uh, is therefore suspect in their eyes. So that's really what uh, it other, is about him, huh? Because it's kind of been a mystery to me, honestly, what it is that they hate so, so much. 
that, that's one part of it. I, and I think another part of it really is a uh, personal dislike of, of his style or the way that he interacts with other people and the way that he will have a tendency to denounce them as sellouts, uh, which they don't, of course, they don't like to hear. Uh, and so I, I think it's, it's a mixture of, of ideological anxieties about uh, where Cruz actually comes down on some of these things, and it's also, uh, on a personal level, just a strong dislike for the guy. Yeah. Well, I can definitely empathize with the second part there. I guess I just figured <laughs> I didn't really imagine that uh, he refuses to even be, you know, try to be friends with any of the other Senate Republicans or that kind of thing in, in such a self-destructive kind of way there, but apparently so. Right. And, and the other thing that has really set them off is that he has dared to use the name Neocon in his criticism mm. of them, which uh, in their eyes is... A uh, forbidden term. You're not supposed to even say that. And so, if he uses it, then he's automatically in their uh, on their list of suspects. Yeah, you know, I saw where they really overreacted to that. I thought where he just used it like hawk. He didn't say like, "Let me tell you all about Bill Crystal and Richard Pearl" or what. You know what I mean? It was just right. You know, right. and they, yeah, they completely flipped out on that. All right. Well, listen, I'm sorry we're out of time because I love talking with you. But uh, thanks very much for coming back on the show, Daniel. Well, thanks, Scott. Look forward to it. All right, y'all. Uh, and yeah, we will uh, do that again very soon. Um, check out Daniel Larison at theamericanconservative.com. He's got a great blog there keeping up with all the politics and the wars for you. We'll be right back. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Our next guest today is Marjorie Cohn. She is a professor at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Uh, her most recent book is Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. Her website is MarjorieCohn.com. Welcome back, Marjorie. How are you? Fine, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, very happy to have you here. Great work, as always. Saudi Arabia is killing civilians with U.S. bombs, reads the headline at TV.net. Saudi Arabia is killing civilians with U.S. bombs by Marjorie Cohn. Those are your search terms, everybody. State your case, ma'am, please. Well, the Saudi Arabia has killed 2,800 civilians, including 500 children in Yemen. This is part of a regional power struggle between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the United States is the primary supplier of Saudi weapons. In November, the U.S. sold $1.29 billion worth of arms to Saudi Arabia. And a month earlier, 
the U.S. approved $11.25 billion in sales of combat ships. During the last five years, the U.S. government has sold the Saudis $100 billion worth of arms. And, of course, we know who's getting rich, the defense contractors. But the United States knows that Saudi Arabia is killing civilians, and it's illegal to target civilians under the Geneva Conventions and also under U.S. law. There is a law called the Leahy Law, which prohibits U.S. assistance to any foreign security forces or military officers if the Secretary of State has credible information that they are committing gross violations of human rights. And there's another federal statute. There's the Arms Trade Treaty, which the United States has signed but not ratified. But even when we sign a treaty, we can't take any action inconsistent with the object and purpose of the treaty. Now, on January the 6th, U.S. cluster bombs were dropped by the Saudi coalition on residential neighborhoods in Yemen's capital. And a U.S. Department of Defense official, speaking on condition of anonymity, told U.S. News and World Report, quote, the U.S. is aware that Saudi Arabia has used cluster munitions in Yemen, unquote. 118 countries have signed an international treaty banning cluster bombs because of their widespread fragments that are lethal to civilians. They don't always explode, and then kids pick them up, and they go off, and the kids are killed or maimed. And Human Rights Watch said the inherently indiscriminate nature of cluster bombs makes such attacks serious violations of the laws of war amounting to a war crime. Now, the United States is aiding and abetting these war crimes. Aiding and abetting is a very standard criminal law principle um, where, and, and it's, it's defined in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. The United States is not a party to the Rome Statute, <clears throat> but the Rome Statute sets forth standard criminal aiding and abetting procedures, and that is that an individual can be convicted of war crimes, and that means one of the U.S. leaders or even Congress, if he or she aids, abets, or otherwise assists in the commission or attempted commission of the crime, including providing the means for its commission. And the United States government is certainly providing the weapons that the Saudis are using to kill civilians and also not just large numbers of civilians with bombs, but in January, the world was horrified when we heard that the Saudi government had executed 47 people, including a prominent pacifist Shiite cleric who had been a leader of the 2011 Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia. And many of those executed were tortured during their detention and denied due process. Most of them were beheaded. Now, this horrifies us understandingly, uh, understandably when ISIS beheads people. And yet the State Department spokesman made a weak protest saying, quote, we believe that diplomatic engagement and direct conversations remain essential in working through differences. I mean, that's outrageous. It's just outrageous. Now, then on, um, on January 23rd, which was, I believe, Saturday, uh, an explosive report came out in the New York Times. And, it, and this, this, is, this kind of, um, you know, explains... The, we know that Saudi Arabia and the United States have a very close working relationship uh, for many years, but this report says that Obama secretly authorized the CIA to begin arming 
Syria's rebels, whoever the, the opposition forces are, and it's not clear that he's really arming the proper opposition forces or anyone that really is an opposition force, um, in 2013. And since then, the CIA and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia have been working together. The Saudis contribute weapons and large sums of money for the bombing in Syria, and the CIA takes the lead in training the rebels on AK-47 assault rifles and tank-destroying missiles. This is called Timber Sycamore, and uh, there's been a long relationship between the CIA um, and the, the spy services of Saudi Arabia during Iran-Contra. Saudi Arabia gave $1 million a month to f- fund the Contras in a secret program that was illegal. We knew that. Um, and they, so they gave money to support the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan. We know what happened there. They turned into al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And Saudi Arabia gave $7 billion in the U.S. proxy fight in um, Angola in the 1980s, where the CIA was trying to defeat the rebels in Angola that was backed by the Soviet government. So then another really interesting twist in all of this, Scott, is that the Saudis contributed $10 million to the Clinton Foundation before Hillary became Secretary of State. And in 2011, the year after the State Department had documented several serious human rights violations by Saudi Arabia, Hillary as Secretary of State, oversaw a $29 billion sale of advanced fighter jets to the Saudis, declaring that it was in our national interest. And Andrew Shapiro, an Assistant Secretary of State, said that the deal was, quote, top priority, unquote, for Hillary. And two months before the deal was clinched, Boeing, which manufactured one of the fighter jets the Saudis wanted to acquire, contributed $900,000 to the Clinton Foundation. What's happening now? Hillary now says the United States should pursue, quote, closer strategic cooperation, unquote, with Saudi Arabia. Very, very worrisome. And even as she admitted, thank you, Chelsea Manning, 35 years in the brig for America's government since uh, we know from the WikiLeaks that she herself in her own uh, words said that the Saudis were the greatest financers of anti-American terrorism on the planet, uh, you know, re- a reference to Al Qaeda and so-called private donations as well. But of course, all of that is still at the pleasure of the Saudi royal family. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, if uh, if if Iran had was killing civilians in these numbers, was beheading people, was executing people, uh, torturing them, you you can bet that the United States and Israel would be all over it. Outrage, sanctions, the whole nine yards. But since Saudi Arabia is such a close ally of the United States in bed with the U.S. government for years and years and years with this with these financial deals. Um, you're not going to hear any protest, any realistic protest from the United States when this happens. And we know that Saudi Arabia, we know we you know, we know how they treat women. We know that they behead people very frequently. Um, and David Sanger in the in the New York Times um, wrote that the United States has, quote, usually looked the other way or issued carefully calibrated warnings in human rights reports as the Saudi royal family cracked down on dissent and free speech and allowed its elite to fund Islamic extremists. 
And in return, Sanger wrote, Saudi Arabia became America's most dependable filling station, a regular supplier of intelligence and a valuable counterweight to Iran. Um, Saudi Arabia and uh, we know that, that, that Israel, which is a very close U.S. ally, and Saudi Arabia both oppose the nuclear, um, the Iran nuclear deal. So, um, you know, this is not just a question of money. It's also a question of um, doing the bidding of one of the closest U.S. allies, Israel. And I think we've spoken before, Scott, about how the United States is largely uncritical of the human rights violations perpetrated by the Israelis against the Palestinians, the illegal settlements that they're building on Palestinian territories, etc. Yeah. And of course, what's funny here is the three excuses that he cites are all complete nonsense, right? We hardly import any oil from Saudi Arabia whatsoever. We get almost all of it that we import from the Western Hemisphere. And regular supplier of intelligence against, what, the same terrorists that America and, and Saudi are backing together in Syria right now, for example, or what are they even talking about? And as far as a valuable counterweight to Iran, he doesn't have to explain the value there. It just goes without saying what value we get out of them doing everything they can to sabotage any reproachment with Iran when the last time we had a real fight with them was 35 years ago. Well, yes, in nineteen well, in, in 1979, there was a revolution in Iran right. uh, to throw out the Shah, the vicious tyrant. Talk about a terrorist and a tyrant. Um, the U.S. had oh, in 1953, the U.S. and this is this, they've admitted this. The CIA engineered a coup, threw out the democratically elected Mohammad Mossadegh, and installed the vicious Shah of Iran, who ruled with an iron fist for 25 years until the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Um, and in 1979, it was a it was a united front with a coalition of many different groups. But you know, of course, unfortunately, we know that it became an Islamic theocracy, and and really provided a model for a lot of the the horrible things we see today. Blowback against U.S. policy. I mean, this is not the first time the U.S. has overthrown a democratically elected um, government and installed a dictator. We did that in. Um, in Chile with Allende um, and installed Pinochet. We, we um, did that in Guatemala. Um, we've done that in many countries. Yeah, and uh, and then home. talking out of both sides of our mouth, right? right. You know, it, when, uh, when one of our uh, one of our so-called enemies or an enemy of one of our so-called allies, such as, such as Israel, um, engages in human rights violations, we scream and yell and, and you know, impose sanctions. But um, there's, there's this double standard, and no wonder um, the United States, I mean, we, we hear uh, this American exceptionalism from our president, from, pe- from people in our government, you know, America's exceptional, we're the leader of the world. Well, most of the people in the, in the rest of the world don't think so, especially when they see the United States, you know, illegally invading other countries, occupying their lands, torturing their people, um, you know, funding uh, terrorism in the, all in the guise of fighting this war on terror. Yeah. All right. Now, um, I wanted to and I know you got to go um, uh, here pretty soon, but I wanted to ask you a follow up here real quick about uh, the killing of civilians versus the targeting of civilians. And um, and this is, in fact, involves the United States as well, because The Wall Street Journal and The Los Angeles Times, among others, have reported that the U.S. is helping the Saudis with their targeting, et cetera. And so I wonder uh, whether 
is there proof that they are deliberately targeting civilians? I already know the answer is yes, but I'd like to hear your answer to that uh, and and what you would cite of their deliberate uh, targeting of civilians there and the and the difference between just seeing the results and knowing how they got that way. Because, of course, pretty much any military in the world would say, oops, we missed. Well, yes, Scott. I mean, a U.N. panel of experts concluded last October that the Saudi-led coalition had committed grave violations of civilians' human rights, and that included indiscriminate attacks, targeting markets, where civilians are, uh, and targeting a camp for displaced Yemenis, targeting a humanitarian aid warehouse, and intentionally preventing the delivery of humanitarian assistance. And the U.N. panel was also concerned, and this is a direct answer to your question, that the coalition considered civilian neighborhoods, including Mara and Sada, as legitimate strike zones. So, yes, there is targeting of civilians, and the International Committee of the Red Cross documented 100 attacks on hospitals. Um, so, yes, there is targeting of civilians, and when you, when you, when you target an, an entire civilian neighborhood and hospitals and, uh, and markets and warehouses where they have humanitarian assistance, yes, that's deliberate targeting of civilians. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, journalist Matthew Akins has explained on the show uh, what he witnessed with his own eyes of them destroying entire towns in the north there. Uh, right. Which, which right. he had seen. And then... Uh, well, I know I got to let you go. I got a million more, but uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for all your great writing and your time again on the show, Marjorie. Thanks a lot, Scott. Bye bye. All right, y'all. That is Marjorie Cohn. She is professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, and uh, you can find this one at Teleserve, Teleserve, Teleserve TV, TeleserveTV.net. Saudi Arabia is killing civilians with U.S. bombs. Oh, and actually, we're already back, right? Let me see. Turn this up here. Yeah, there. Good. Okay, good. So, well, that was the uh, very clumsy end of that interview. I don't know if y'all heard what she called me there at the end. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, yeah, I'm Scott Horton. This is my show, Scott Horton Show. It goes by other names. Um, uh, yeah. So, isn't she great? I hate to even interrupt her at all to ask her questions, man. Uh, I like everything that she has to say there. I had a couple more follow-up questions about the Rome statute, ICC stuff, and technicalities there, but... Anyway. Um, yeah, so much great stuff brought up in that interview that we didn't get to follow up on. And, you know, I don't have the time, and I don't really have the inclination. You probably don't want to hear me do it, but I do sort of kind of regret that I did not just read this whole article here. I do hope that you guys will look at it. I'm actually going to reread it because I realized while she was talking that I didn't memorize the secret code name of the thing as revealed in the New York Times. But then she revealed it. She she mentioned it again, reminded me, Timber Sycamore. But the fact that I hadn't already uh, had that implanted in my brain, you know, in a deep enough rut where I could uh, find it again uh, means that I need to reread this article myself. That way, generations from now, I can say, Sonny, gather around, I'll tell you a story about Timber Sycamore. Back when Obama was back in Decatur, into Syria there. Well, what we used to call Syria. It'll be great. Uh, U.S. for lies. Do you like my old me impression? That's me when I'm old. U.S. relies heavily on Saudi money to support Syria rebels. It's, um... 
Mazzetti and Apuzo in the New York Times. And yeah, no, look, I know we all know this, but I'm just saying, see, isn't it nice when it's in the New York Times? Then you can say, look, it's even in the New York Times, man. And not only that, but, you know, there's new information here, new details about how it worked and who's running things. And uh, plenty of confirmation for all of your uh, ready-made accusations against Prince Bandar and Hillary Clinton and everybody that you hate. It's great. It's great. I mean, I think uh, clearly there are omissions and there are places where you can read between the lines and, and, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm not saying it's perfect. It's a freaking New York Times article, but it's. Hey, it's it's great confirmation bias for anyone who's accused Obama of high treason for the last five years. Does USA back Al-Qaeda? Yes. It's in the New York Times again. And you know what? I really like that about Chuck D. I follow Chuck D on Twitter and uh, Chuck D always did. I already say this on the radio. I already said this on the radio, didn't I? Hey, look, sometimes I can't remember what I've said before or not. But he always calls it USA, not the U.S., you know? And the thing I like about it is, is it's because, well, I already started saying it, so I have to finish it for everybody who didn't hear me the first time. Sorry. The U.S. means the government, the U.S. state at war with all of the rest of humanity, you know? USA is what we all believe in, (laughs) Or, or did, or are supposed to. USA does this, does that, and yet any old way you can finish that sentence is a head shake and shame at the hypocrisy and the shame of the contradiction of what it is that the U.S. is doing or what is happening in the USA, the country. It is so contrary to the ideals that we all claim to believe in. Which are simple, right? Fairness, justice, a chance to confront your accusers and get a fair hearing when you're accused of stuff. The right to own the stuff that you own and not have to give it away to your local warlord. Anyway... Give it away. Well, it's a voluntary contribution. <clears throat> like my uh, sound effects? That was pretty good, huh? All right. Um, I, I didn't mention this, but I should have. It's just another important footnote. It's nothing too uh, explosive. Unless maybe you're new to this, kind of, you're coming around, or you're young, or something. It's called The Iraq Wars Known Unknowns. It's by our friend Ray McGovern at ConsortiumNews.com. And it's about a report that Richard Myers put on... Oh, he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it's a report that he put on the desk of Donald Rumsfeld... September the 5th, 2002, right? Just days before Congress voted on the authorization. Just weeks before the United Nations voted on the initial kind of half-assed authorization for the war. Myers put a report on Rumsfeld's desk saying, well, geez, boss, we think he might have some chemical weapons, but we don't know where any of it is and we don't know how to find it. As far as nukes, we don't even think they have anything to find. 
Those are not direct quotes, but you can read the whole dang thing. The report is at politico.com. What Donald Rumsfeld knew we didn't know. And it's by John Walcott, who was one of the original all-stars of the Knight Ritter Brigade, who were the only mainstream media newspaper reporters who did a damn good job debunking the case for war back in 2002. 2001 through 3, I should say. And that is Landa, Strobel, and Walcott, along with um, George Galloway. Not the English blowhard or Scottish blowhard. The uh, uh, the American writer, different first name. Maybe I maybe it's not George. It's something else. Galloway. Anyway, Landay, Strobel, Walcott, and Galloway. They were the ones who were good on the weapons of mass destruction accusations not being true. Anyway, so this article, it's really good. Or I don't know. Yeah, you'll learn stuff from it, and it just goes to show that yeah, they knew they were lying. They knew they were lying. And uh, and Ray McGovern is also great on this. Ray McGovern is formerly the chief of the CIA anti-Soviet analysts back in the day. He was a CIA analyst for 27 years, used to brief George H.W. Bush when he was the vice president under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And he's the founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, who uh, all through 2002 sent open memos to President George Bush telling him the stuff is not right, man. We already knew what they did not have. So if they have this stuff now, then it's only because of black magic. Because otherwise this stuff doesn't exist. We already know that it doesn't. We already know as we hear Dick Cheney speak, we know he's not telling the truth at his VFW speech. And by the way, yours truly, nobody, sitting at home watching Dick Cheney's VFW speech. I called him out at the time, too, and I wasn't that special for it. The only thing special about me was I have CNN and a long-term memory. And when Dick Cheney said, oh, yeah, Donald, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, sorry, I get them confused. Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, Hussein Kamel, he admitted that they lied and kept weapons of mass destruction. Period. Oh, Dick Cheney was such a liar. I saw it. Well, I knew the whole story from the 90s when it happened. I was paying attention. Um, but I had seen CNN. They played it, man. They interviewed Hussein Kamel. And what he said was that they had kept some of the weapons after the first Gulf War, but then they got caught by the U.N. and the U.S., and they gave it all up and destroyed every last bit of it by the end of 1991. And America knew this for a fact by 1995. And so me and Ray McGovern, the greatest intelligence spy in the world, uh, knew that Dick Cheney was a damn liar when he said that in uh, his VFW speech in 2002. Anyway, read him at Consortium News. Bye.